For our time in God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. From a conference theme perspective, we are considering the suffering Son after having considered the eternal Son, the incarnate Son, and last night the obedient Son. Today we come to the sufferings of our Lord on behalf of His people. Primarily, we're going to focus on verse 29 of John chapter 1, but I want to read some of the extended context around that to set this passage properly as a jewel in the ring of the Word of God. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, reading about John the Baptist, we read that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then if you drop down to verse 19, you get an extended record of the ministry and message of John the Baptist. And this is at the very, very opening of the public ministry of Christ. So this is framing, you might say, what we read here is framing everything else that we know about Christ going forward is framed by what we see in the forerunner's message about him, beginning in verse 19, and I'm going to read down through verse 37. So it's an extended passage, but the Lord will bless our reverence and respect for his word. Verse 19 And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. The full context of these extended passages explain what is happening as we consider the text in verse 29 and in verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Prophetically, Isaiah had told in advance that there would be a man like John the Baptist to come and to prepare the way for the Messiah. And now, some 700 years later, we are seeing the effect of that and the fulfillment of John's prophecy in the day with John and his contemporaries. And it is... It is important for us to realize that God brought attention to John the Baptist so that John could bring even greater attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent one ahead of time, ahead of Christ, drew all manner of attention as shown by the concern that the religious leaders had. Who are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? All of that spotlight was put on John the Baptist, so to speak, and if we think in terms of theatrical productions today, which I don't like to think in those terms, but it serves our purpose for now, the spotlight was on John so that he could point over to Christ, and the spotlight would go and shine even more greatly and more brightly on Christ, so that attention was gathered around one man so that it could be translated over to someone even greater Now, our task for this morning, our privilege for this morning, as we once again have the privilege to have a Bible in our own language on our laps to read the very Word of God in comparative safety, we should never underestimate the privilege that is ours to be in that position. As we open the Word of God, we want to focus on those words, Behold the Lamb of God. Because in the first century, to the first century Jew, this was something that would, would have been almost inconceivable to, for them to consider. The expectation of the people of God at that time was that there would be a conquering Messiah to come and to deliver them in a political, military sense from the domination of Rome. To say that here is the Lamb of God creates an entirely different picture based on their Old Testament history. What I want to do here this morning to bring out the fullness of the meaning of this term, the Lamb of God, this name for Christ, I want to take us back to the Old Testament to set the historical context for the fullness of what John is saying. As I said last night as we were considering the baptism of Christ, there is a, there's a sense in which if we just come to these things for the first time, reading the Bible for the first time, maybe never having really read the Old Testament, which should not be the condition of any genuine Christian for very long, the New Testament is built on the Old Testament, and you really can't understand it apart from that. But we want to consider what the Old Testament has to say about these things. So that we understand what John, the fullness of what John is saying as he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Now, in most simple, basic terms, a lamb is a young sheep. 
And in the Old Testament, it was the principal animal of sacrifice among the Jews of the Old Testament. And the Jews, to whom John was preaching there in the first century, the Jews knew from key episodes in their history the principle, this is really important, this is a great pivot point in the message, and you need to grasp this from the very start. So this is a great time to perk up and pay extra attention. The Jews knew from key episodes in their history the principle of a lamb, a literal animal lamb, the principle of a lamb being sacrificed to preserve the life of someone else from the judgment of God. A lamb was sacrificed to preserve the life of the people of God from the judgment of God. This is critical to understand. This is central to the redemptive mission of Christ. And it is no wonder that in the chronological unfolding of the record of the life of Christ that we have that this is placed at the very start. Because you understand everything else in light of this. A lamb being sacrificed to preserve or save the life of another from the judgment of God. So if you take notes as you listen to messages, here's point number one, cleverly titled, The Lamb in the Old Testament. The Lamb in the Old Testament. And I'm making fun of my own points here when I say that. I don't spend a lot of time coming up with points and alliteration most of the time. Because sometimes I think that the, the homiletical aspects of that kind of stuff just gets in the way of the truth. So let's just be clear and simple with one another and consider the lamb in the Old Testament as we look at our first point here this morning. Now, you'll remember, if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament at all, when God was about to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, this principle of a lamb came into central focus, a lamb being sacrificed to preserve the life of God's people from the judgment of God. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 12. You remember how God took a small band of his people into Egypt, some 70 in number. They multiplied in Egypt over the course of 400 years. And in keeping with his promise, it was time to deliver them. And there were a series of plagues that he brought on to the unwilling Pharaoh who was not willing to let the people of God go. And so God sent a series of, of nine plagues and is about to send a tenth and final plague upon Egypt so that, his peop so that he could deliver his people from slavery, literal physical slavery in the nation of Egypt and bring them out to a land of their own so that they could worship and be a people set apart for him. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, we read this. And we'll start in verse 1, just to start at the chapter break. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this is Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb 
for a household. And if you skip over verse 4 for the sake of time to verse 5, he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. What's happening here? The blood of that slain lamb was going to mark out the Jews who were living in the midst of the Egyptians. It would mark them out and separate them from the judgment of the death of the firstborn that God was about to bring upon the Egyptians. As you continue reading... God explains this in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12, and we won't take time to go through the whole narrative of the actual event. I'll presume that you are at least somewhat familiar with that. In verse 12, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. You see, God is bringing judgment, and the point is, is that there needed to be a lamb with blood shed of that lamb in order to separate his people so that the judgment does not fall on them. It had to be applied personally to their household. And so at the end of verse 12, he says, I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If the blood is on you, so to speak, you're safe. If the blood is not on you, the fullness of my judgment will be brought upon your head. Now, as you read on in Exodus, God, as he established his people and established the ceremonial laws that would govern their existence in the land he established and required a lamb as the daily sacrifice for Jews to meet with him. Look at Exodus chapter 29, an admittedly less familiar passage in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39. We read this, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Then drop down to verses 41 through 43. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. Now a look at what is said here in verse 42. It leaps off the page in the context that we are gathered together today. Verse 42, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where... I will meet with you to speak to you there, 
There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. This lamb was a symbol of innocence, a symbol of blamelessness. And that lamb was slain in substitution for those who were guilty so that the guilty could approach God. The lamb became central to the meeting place with God. Now, as you continue a little further in the Old Testament, we've seen the the Passover lamb, so to speak. We've seen the daily sacrifice of the lamb. Let's go even further into the New Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53. With all of these things in mind, Isaiah chapter 53, never losing fact, never losing sight of the fact that we are setting a context to understand what the fullness of John's meaning was when he said, behold, the Lamb of God. We're building on, we're building up to something else here with what we're saying today. We're, we're, we're hearing this, we're doing our best to enter into the sandals of the first century Jews who heard John say this so that we understand it in, with the same kind of presuppositions that they did. And in Isaiah chapter 53, speaking prophetically, the prophet says this in the familiar language beginning in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one. It's like he's saying, every one of us. We've turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then drop down in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities, many counted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. You put all of these things together, my friends, You put all of these New Testament puzzle pieces, which we've arranged very quickly, I acknowledge that, for the sake of time, and you realize that what John is saying and what the Old Testament was preparing us for is that the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, the deliverer of the people of God, was destined, was appointed by God was foreordained by God to be slain like a, like a lamb as a substitute sacrifice so that his people could avoid death in the midst of the judgment of God. This lamb would be offered in place of the guilty so that the guilty could go free and be forgiven and escape all of the horrors of the righteous judgment of God brought upon sinners 
at the end of the age. Now, here's what you and I want to understand before we go back to John chapter 1. Scripture and 1,500 years of history since Moses and daily practice and annual feasts had ingrained all of this on the mind of Old Testament Jews for 1,500 years. You want to put that in some kind of context? American history, 250 years since the Declaration of, the Inde uh, Declaration of Independence. Six times longer the Jews had been having this ingrained on their consciousness as fathers taught their children and the children taught the grandchildren and generation after generation and, and all the annual feasts and all of the sacrifices, all of this ingraining it on their minds so that this principle of the lamb as a sacrifice to avoid the judgment of God was more impressed on their consciousness than for those of us in America. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln is ingrained on ours. Just to give you some sense of comparison, that's how deeply imprinted it was and how clear the reference was when John says, the Lamb of God. Now that brings us to our second point here, having dealt with all of this background. Let's consider Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. And I invite you to turn back to the first chapter of John to circle back to our text for this morning. John chapter 1, verse 29. And if we, could, if we could do it this way, realizing that there are, thanks be to God, many true believers in Christ gathered in the room today, but also, as Kyle prayed earlier, not wanting to take for granted that everyone in the room is a Christian, that would be a foolish assumption for a preacher to make. Let's approach this with the eyes of what was true of all of us from birth before our conversion, that we were guilty, vile sinners, dead in transgressions, dominated by the devil, blinded by Satan, Scripture says, and doomed to suffer the wrath of God. Guilty in Adam, guilty in our own individual right, and somehow having a sense, helping us now by the Holy Spirit, I trust, to give us a sense of the weight of judgment that was upon us, knowing that Revelation 20 speaks of standing before God at a great white throne judgment and those whose names are not written in the book of life being cast away into the eternal lake of fire and torment with the devil and his angels. Beloved, <laughs> beloved, we can, we can come together as Christians and we can, I'm not, I'm not at all imputing this to Twin City Bible Church, but certainly it's the landscape of what passes for evangelicalism today. We can gather together in a great social club. We can gather together and, and, and say happy words to each other and sing happy songs to each other with fog lights and colors and all of this other stuff that passes for worship in our day and age. 
But if we, don't, if we don't come before the Word of God and we don't come before the holiness of God and if we don't come to before a holy Christ with a sense of the reality of judgment, we're just playing games, deceptive games that can only be the blind leading the blind into a pit. We must take seriously, earnestly, as our matter of highest priority, that God has pronounced his wrath to be upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1 verse 18, and that there is no excuse for anyone not to acknowledge him as Lord and creator. And when you consider the proclamation of the gospel being a a mechanism for those who reject it of even greater judgment... Because if, if you reject the revelation of God as he has given it in Christ, you are rejecting the very Son of God himself, rejecting his very redemptive message. And what can be left for those who reject the sacrifice of Christ except a terrifying expectation of judgment, as the book of Hebrews says? We have got to be serious about this. And you can explain, the only way that you can explain the current state of the evangelical, so-called evangelical church, certainly in America and probably throughout all of the world, is to understand that the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians are not actually regenerate, and that, the number of, that there are a, an exceeding number of pastors in these churches who themselves are not regenerate. Only if you look at the Bible and see that it's a narrow way and then look out at the colossal failure of the spiritual wreckage all around us, only if you view it from that perspective can you begin to have, I believe, an integrated view of what the Bible says and what you see all around you. And if those things are true, and I certainly believe they are, then it is of utmost cruciality and importance for us to pay great heed to these things and to take them seriously as the greatest and highest priority in all of our lives. If we're not willing to do that, if we don't see that from Scripture, we're really wasting our time. But we're not going to waste our time here this morning. We're going to take these things earnestly and we're going to look at this second point as we consider Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God in light of everything that we said from the Old Testament. So when John the Baptist pointed to Christ at the beginning of his ministry, we understand why he called him the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29 with me again, followed by verse 36. Verse 29 The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 36, he looked at Jesus the next day as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, when you study this passage with modern commentaries at your side, you'll find that scholars, as they are wont to do, they quibble over exactly what John had in mind when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Was he referring to Jesus as the sacrifice, like the daily sacrifice of the meeting of God? Was he referring to the Passover lamb? Was he referring to Isaiah 53? You can find all kinds of discussion to illuminate you along those lines. For our purposes today, the overall import 
of what John says, John the Baptist says, is entirely clear. He is figuratively calling Christ a lamb. He's using a metaphor, a word picture, to describe Christ and his mission and to introduce him to the Jewish nation and ultimately to all of the world. He figuratively called Christ a lamb because Christ would be the one who was in innocence slain so that the people of God could escape his judgment. And in so doing, Jesus Christ would become the meeting place with the Holy God. Christ the Lamb would be sacrificed so the judgment of God would pass over anyone who receives him and is identified with him. To say that Jesus was the Lamb of God meant that he would suffer, that he would die, that his blood would be poured out in literal death on behalf of his people. Now, for those of us that love Christ, it's, there's, some, there's a visceral reaction to that. The Lord that we love, the Lord that we know is holy and gracious and righteous and merciful and patient, the one who laid his hand upon us to realize that at the start of his public life as a young man, he knew that he was headed to Jerusalem. In the end, he knew that he was headed for the cross. And there's a sympathy in our heart that goes out as we realize that this Christ, the Lamb, would bear the sins of his people in his coming death. And for those of us that the Spirit has drawn to him, those of us that God has personally saved by name, and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we realize that there's a sense in which he was going to bear my sins in that coming death your sins, that somehow as a direct substitute for his people, somehow in the cross, as I believe it was J. Gresham Machen that said, somehow at the cross, I'm probably mixing up the historical reference for this, but it doesn't matter, that he thought of me on the cross because he bore my sins somehow in a way that's far beyond our ability to probe into and understand. Somehow, as Christ died for his people, as he literally stood as a substitute for us, somehow he thought of us. He felt the eternal pains for our sins as the Lamb of God. And his innocent life would be slain in the place of his sinful people. In 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, in our place as our substitute, shedding his blood as a lamb so that we could escape the judgment of God. The Apostle Peter uses similar imagery to impress the full nature of salvation upon us. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, you go to the book of Hebrews, then the book of James, you'll run into 1 Peter immediately thereafter. Now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, as Peter writes to the people of God, 
reflecting backwards now, looking back on conversion, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This lamb was slain so that you, despite your sin, could find a safe meeting place with God. An innocent lamb laid down his life on your behalf. Conduct yourselves in fear. Let the thought of that sober you up in life and realize where your eternal priorities and what your earthly priorities, where they are set. It's in allegiance and loyalty and submission and trust and faith in this one who was and is the Lamb of God. Because he was the only one who could offer an atoning sacrifice sufficient for God. He was the only one, fully God in full human flesh, able to bridge, as it were, on one shore the holiness of God and on the other shore our sinful selves. A bridge, if it's going to cross over water, has to be rooted on both sides of the body of water. And the gulf of the ocean of our sin and separation from God, Christ stands with one foot planted in deity, so to speak, speaking metaphorically here, another foot planted on humanity, and in that, bridging the gap. And we need that. Isaiah says in chapter 59, verse 2, your iniquities... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The prophet Ezekiel said, the soul who sins will die. And so as the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ took the stroke of the judgment of God in the place of his people. Bore the death penalty publicly and in shame in the horrific cross, that common method of shameful execution used for a thousand years in human history, suffered hanging in disgrace, paying a penalty that should have been ours paying it in love for his people, paying it in obedience to his Father, paying what you and I, if we had 10,000 eternities, could never have begun to pay on our own. Helpless, vile, we were. Spotless Lamb of God was he. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered in his humanity. He suffered in his soul, as it were, bearing the full weight of the judgment and wrath of God upon us. And again, 1 Peter 3, he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Theologically, we can express it this way. The death of Christ was penal, meaning he paid the penalty of sin in full. The death of Christ was substitutionary. He suffered that penalty on behalf of his people. He was the substitute lamb. We didn't talk about the imagery that they used in the Old Testament, but they would, they would lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice, symbolizing a transfer of guilt and the deeds, the guilty deeds of hands being placed on the head of the innocent lamb, and then the lamb would be slain. After a transfer of guilt was made, the lamb was slain, and God permitted the one offering the sacrifice to go free as they looked forward in that day to the substitute sacrifice of Christ. Do you see, beloved, I plead with you. I plead with you to calm your mind, humble your heart, and consider these things afresh once again. For some of you, for the first time with open eyes, this was a great act of condescension by the Lord Jesus Christ without which we could not be saved. This was, this was immeasurable, unconquerable love for sinners. Nothing in you, nothing in us, nothing in his people to prompt him to do that. Nothing in us deserving that kind of deliverance. All that when, was within us was a full deserving of the outpouring of the wrath of God upon us. And so here we are, guilty, vile, and helpless. And in the eternal plan of God, Jesus Christ steps into the gap as a lamb to lay down his own precious blood so that we might escape the judgment that we rightly deserved. If that doesn't move your heart somehow, beloved, you're not a Christian. See, like the children of Israel, you must have that blood applied to your soul so that the judgment of God will pass over you. Without the blood, you are lost. But dear Christian friends, with that blood applied to your soul, you are safe forever. The judgment of God will pass over you what your sins deserve has already been paid in Christ and now you are free from any condemnation Romans 8 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus having been justified by faith we have peace with God but you must receive Christ I want to end 
our time this morning with a couple of notes from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote, he said, God from all eternity appointed the Lord Jesus to be the great sacrifice for sin. When we rely upon Jesus Christ to save us, we trust in one whom God has appointed to save his people. If, continuing the quote, if as a poor guilty sinner I leave my sin upon Christ, the Lamb of God, I leave it where God has bid me cast it. I rest in a sacrifice which God himself ordained of old to be the sacrifice for sin. O soul, there can be no question that if you come to the Father in the way in which he himself appoints, you come acceptably. God's appointment is the guarantee of the acceptance of everyone that believes in Jesus. End quote. There's a famous and, as far as I know, completely true anecdote about the ministry of Charles Spurgeon that deals with this very text. I love this story, and I pretty much close with it. In 1857, Spurgeon was in a large auditorium before the days of amplified sound. He was in a large auditorium to do a sound check before preaching the next day to a crowd of over 20,000 people. Most people, in our, using our modern language, most people, even pastors, would say at a time of a sound check, just wanting to get it over with and get on to the next thing, testing, one, two, three, testing, and the guy in the back would give him a thumbs up and everything would be fine. Spurgeon didn't do that. His heart so full of Christ, so full of the Bible running through his veins, that in that seemingly throwaway moment of ministry, preparing for something much more major, he simply cried out in that empty, seemingly empty auditorium, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, unbeknownst to Spurgeon, there was a worker in the building who knew nothing about the plans for tomorrow or anything else like that. He didn't know what, about what was happening, but he heard those simple words. And Spurgeon says they came like a message from heaven to his soul. That man, that worker, was convicted of sin, put down his tools, and went home after hearing Spurgeon speak in the words of John the Baptist. The historical record tells us that after some inward struggle, that man found peace and eternal life by beholding the Lamb of God. Well, beloved, let's accelerate forward 100 and, what is it, 65 years to today from that event. It's my great privilege of which I am supremely unworthy. But on the same authority as Charles Spurgeon today to point you to the same Christ and the same Spirit of God that spoke to the heart of that unseen worker so many years ago, 
The same Spirit of God says to you here this morning, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No matter your guilt, no matter, and I like saying things like this to a, an audience that considers itself Christian, and knowing the danger of false converts in our midst, no matter your past hypocrisy, your present hypocrisy, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you stumble in? Maybe it's someone's invitation. All these things are new to you. Despite your present ignorance, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Christian, despite your future weakness and the way that we all stumble in so many ways, James chapter 3, behold the Lamb of God, your precious Savior, who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, my friend, my dear, dear friend, the Spirit of God calls you right now to eternal salvation from your sin and guilt by faith alone, without works, without money, without price to pay, simply to receive the full gift of forgiveness and eternal life by beholding the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, my friend. Yes, 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 in His mercy. The Spirit calls you by grace to behold the suffering Son, the only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Oh, dear God, yours was the eternal plan, yours was the wisdom that ordained Christ to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We ask now that by grace you would draw all men to yourself as Christ has been lifted up through your word in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.